Hi, welcome to the fifth episode of Defining You with Dr. DeVries. I'm your host and a third-year psychiatry resident currently living in upstate New York. And today we'll be discussing hypnosis and hypnotherapy. So the reason I chose this subject is because I've been interested in hypnosis and hypnotherapy for better half of the year now. And actually we have a psychologist that works with residents currently and he used hypnosis and hypnotherapy in general throughout his life of practice and he's like 150 years old. So he has a lot of experience. And when I first started residency, I thought hypnosis is just a sham and something that I will never utilize. But I get to my third year and I actually went to a seminar on hypnosis done by Dr. Muskin, who is currently the head of consult liaison psychiatry at Columbia University. And he said that he performs hypnosis on most of his patients and it really does work. So on today's episode, I just wanted to find out why it works and how it works and what changes, if any, occur in the brain when we try and do hypnosis. So I first wanted to define what hypnosis actually is. So I found a definition on the American Psychological Association and it defines it as a social interaction in which one person, the designated subject, responds to suggestions offered by another person, which is the designated hypnotist, for experiences involving alterations in the person's perception, memory, and their voluntary action. So hopefully this process is for the sake of some change the patient desires, be it smoking cessation, increase in self-esteem, anything. So hypnosis is a formalized pathway into something called trance, or what we call in psychiatry, dissociation. And hypnotherapy involves a programmed trance for the therapeutic purposes. So hypnosis can bypass or lower the critical thinking filters of the cognitive mind in order to access unconscious processes, possibly those involving alterations in in your perception, memory, and voluntary action. And once we get the person into a trance, we create inadvertently a condition of a heightened suggestibility. And that is the theory of how a person actually changes their actions because they're highly suggestible when your frontal lobe is not really working or your consciousness. So the word actually hypnosis is derived from a Greek word And it means sleep. So long before it was used in medicine currently, hypnosis was practiced by the Druids, the the Celts, and the Egyptians. And they built temples specifically for 
relaxation and healing and hypnosis. So hypnosis is a state of consciousness that is really characterized by intense absorption with the internal experience and kind of a voluntary suspension of normal awareness of the outside stimuli. It really is a phenomenon where the body and mind that at least involves a complex interplay of the person's genetics, which I will explain later, your brain structure, your imagination, and neurochemical processes. So in this dissociated state of focused awareness, it is possible to influence voluntary and involuntary behavior through suggestion. Now, hypnosis has been really portrayed as a very negative thing in movies. I recently just watched a movie on Netflix where a hypnotist, actually a psychiatrist, was using hypnosis on a patient and he called her and over one word, she was able to completely turn off her higher critical thinking skills and be capable of killing another person. Now, this is just sensationalized and that's not how hypnosis really works. But we do try to influence voluntary and involuntary behavior through something called suggestions while we do the hypnosis hypnosis session. So the clinician typically uses an induction technique and and he may incorporate focus on your breath, relaxation, directing attention, or imagery that evokes the memories of previous dissociative experiences. So I guess what most people don't realize is that the state of trance or disassociation occurs naturally to most of us almost daily. Uh, and that happens when, you know, you when you become fully absorbed in a task to the exclusion of whatever else is happening around you. So, uh, for instance, a common problem is when people forget to monitor that they're snacking on something when watching TV and when they're being fully absorbed by the TV show. Before they know it, the family size of Doritos is gone because we just went into a trance. When we hear about hypnosis, we hear a lot about the terms the conscious and the unconscious mind. And I just wanted to define like what really the difference between the two words are. So the conscious mind includes cognitive processing, awareness, concentration, and critical thinking skills. The unconscious, however, is always working, storing and holding information for short and long-term memory with the conscious and unconscious minds then working together, you can be aware of many things all at once. So consider movement is generated by the unconscious. You don't really think about moving. Or when your heart beats, you don't have to think about your heart beating because that would drive you insane. Or you don't have to think about breathing. So you have a strong set of survival skills. That is all unconscious thinking. 
And deeper processes in the unconscious mind define who uniquely you are as a person. So your spiritual self, your personality, and your soul. So we might say that your conscious mind consists of awareness, cognitive skills, and recall of memories. And the unconscious mind is in charge of basically everything else, which includes basic physiological functioning, like your heart beating. As permanent as your core self might be or the spiritual self that you might be defined as, your unconscious mind is infinitely adaptive. Now, potentially with both positive and negative outcomes, whereas your conscious mind may have to wade through reasoning processes and habits in order to make changes. So this is the reason why we find such value in hypnotherapy is because the unconscious mind is infinitely adaptive and through suggestions, through hypnosis, we can make the most profound changes out there. So now I just wanted to mention a little bit about history of hypnosis, which always interests me because I was a history major at my university in undergrad. And the history is quite interesting. So the first use of hypnosis in medicine was by Fra Franz Mesmer, who was a German physician. He lived from 1734 until 1815. And he is actually considered the father of hypnosis. And he was very interested in an effect of physical energy and magnetism on the body and spirit. So he would actually place his patients in a tub filled with iron fillings and he would sweep a wide brush or his arm uh, around his patients. So he made these passes up and down the patient's bodies and he would see if these fillings would move due to the magnetism. Pretty strange, but... In 1843, then there was a Scottish doctor named James Braid who actually proposed the term hypnotism. And hypnotism was actually a technique derived from the original animal magnetism proposed by Franz Mesmer. Then we get into the 1800s. So there was a surgeon named John S. Dale, and he lived from 1808 to 1859. But he began using trance inductions while doing surgery in India when there were no other anesthetics available. And he actually found out that his hypnotized patients have increased resistance to infection, they had greater comfort and quicker recovery times. Then there was a school developed um, called the School of Hypnotic Study in Nancy France, and they theorized that trances were a normal phenomena. The neurologist Jean Martin Charcot also saw hypnosis not only as a treatment for hysteria, which was common, which was a very common diagnosis at that time, but also part of the hysteria process, which was quite interesting. So in the mid 1840s, then to the late 1950s, there was not a lot of interest in hypnosis, partly due to Freud 
stop stopping using it as a therapeutic vehicle, but even more so due to the introduction of chloroform and ether as an anesthetic, which were quicker and much easier to use and much, much more predictable than hypnosis because many people have different hypnotizability scales. Interest in the hypnosis increased actually in the United States after World War II when psychologists Weizenhofer and Hilgard founded a lab to study hypnosis at Stanford University. And they actually developed something called the Stanford Hypnotic Susceptibility Scale. They said that hypnotizability is measured by the scale, which is made up of a series of hypnotic behaviors. They also said that hypnotizability is a relatively stable trait that is independent of someone's intelligence. So all across the world, approximately 15% of people are very, very highly hypnotizable, and they are called highs. 65% of the population are moderately susceptible, and about 20% are called lows, and they're not very susceptible to hypnosis at all, and it would not work on them. The scale that they developed consisted of a series of 12 activities, such as holding one's arm outstretched or sniffing the contents of a bottle and that tested actually the depth of the hypnotic state. So there is actually a difference between the brains of people who are highly hypnotizable and people who are not. So imaging through fMRI, functional MRI, was actually done in people who have either low hypnotizability and high hypnotizability And it found that highly hypnotizable people show a significantly larger rostrum area in the brain. And this is actually the area of the brain that is involved in attention and the transfer of information between the two prefrontal cortices. And this actually suggests that if you're highly hypnotizable, you have a more efficient frontal attention system, which allows you to inhibit stimuli in the trance state. Also, it was found that hypnosis seems to involve more activity in the hippocampus, which is responsible for memory storage, and less activity in the amygdala, which is responsible for emotion. This is the theory why hypnosis works, is that Hypnosis can interrupt the attachment between the emotion and the cognitive information and later the sensory processing of it. So it takes the physical sting out of an emotional event and it takes the physiological sting out of emotional event. The most common disorders that are treated by hypnosis in general Most people heard about smoking cessation. Some programs advertise a success rate of as high as 90%, while others report rates of 15% and lower. And there's such a high difference between the two. It's because hypnosis is not a miracle. People have to work on themselves and their habits, and they have to be ready to change and ready to work on themselves. 
So you can't just go to one hypnosis session and think that it will cure your smoking if you smoked for the past 60 years. But hypnosis has been studied on other patients with different conditions, such as on chronic pain patients, people undergoing dental procedures, people with headaches, inflammatory bowel syndrome, people who just experienced burns, osteoarthritis, and has been studied specifically for its use with cancer populations. In the pediatric populations, there is evidence out there that hypnosis has a beneficial effect on anxiety and pain associated with kids who undergo bone marrow aspiration and lumbar puncture. Hypnosis treatment has also been associated with much less nausea and vomiting after someone had chemotherapy in the terminally ill patient. Hypnotic analgesia was also very useful during surgery when it was the only anesthetic with no other alternatives. Now, however, it is used in addition to the anesthetics and analgesics. If it is used alone, there should be a very good reason for it. Hypnotherapy in psychiatry is very effective for treating many forms of anxiety. So current research shows higher levels generally of hypnotizability in people who are already diagnosed with anxiety disorders, which include PTSD, acute stress disorder, and dissociative disorders. And there was a study out there that When hypnosis was added to CBT for treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, and that was compared to people just having supportive therapy, the CBT with hypnosis group had much better treatment results than the other two groups. Unfortunately, there aren't many studies comparing hypnosis to other treatments because it's hard to get a placebo for a dissociative state unless you put someone on some sort of a drug that causes that but then the person would know that they're taking the drug just quickly i just wanted to mention if anybody's interested in hypnosis what a typical hypnosis session would look like for you so usually it it consists of four stages First, you'd have the induction and it leads the patient into a trance, then a period of much deepening involvement of the unconscious mind while minimizing the involvement of the conscious mind. Then the other stage, the therapy itself, where the therapist makes suggestions based on the problem that you're coming with. And finally, guided transition back to the conscious awareness. So during a pre-treatment assessment, the hypnotherapist should learn the patient's problem, his or her history, their ability to reflect, their desire level of participation, their past experiences with hypnosis. I hope you enjoyed this episode on hypnosis. I currently am learning how to give hypnosis to some of my patients however unfortunately I'm not a hypnotherapist a trained hypnotherapist so it's difficult but definitely in the future maybe post 
residency, I would like to continue that skill because it really does work. And I've seen a lot of improvement in people who do utilize it. So thank you for listening in to another episode of Defining You with Dr. DeVries. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to write and I'll see you next time.